Last week, we did the last half of Genesis 4, verses 16 through 26, and we talked about the genealogy of Cain, and tonight we do the genealogy of Adam. Now, as we've mentioned before, that sometimes when we reach these studies on genealogies, we can find them very, very boring. I love them. I think they're pretty neat, pretty exciting, and I'm excited about this message tonight because there's so much information in these 32 verses of this genealogy. And we're going to get into that, and it's going to be pretty neat to see what God does with this. So, with that being said, let's do the smart thing. Quick word of prayer, and let's jump right into this. Heavenly Father, as always, Lord, you wrote this, and I just pray you would help us to learn and understand it as just the Spirit leads and guides. And I just think of everything going on in the back, Lord. So many classes going on right now. Pray to bless this, the nursery and the toddler. Lord, uh, the preschool, also the junior high classes and the CBC group. So many kids back there. I pray to bless them and just all those helping and serving too. In your name, amen. Now, this is pretty straightforward in verses 1 through 32. It does a pretty typical order here. And you can see this in verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. A little bit of background. Adam lived 130 years, verse 3, and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And that's the general theme that you're going to see here through the rest of it. They'll introduce the person, say how old he was when they had one of their children. Then I'll talk about how much longer they lived after that. Then I'll talk about the total amount of years, 930. And then it'll end with this phrase, verse 5, he died. As you can see in our sheets, he died, mentioned eight times in Genesis chapter 5. There's a reason why this is mentioned. Sin kills. This wasn't what was supposed to happen. But this is what happens when you allow sin to come into the world. Look at Romans 6, 23 on your sheets there. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God made it very clear that if you would go back and eat of the tree of knowledge, that you will surely die. Now here's the problem with sin killing. Most times, sin does not kill immediately. Adam ate and he lived 930 years. Now, that's not an instantaneous death by any means whatsoever. But sin still killed him. Now, there's obviously examples in the Bible of instantaneous judgment of when God's hand was upon it. I think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. There's an example of uh, Azariah, one of the kings. He was a great king, started out real great. If you remember the story here, he started out wonderful. He was serving the Lord, and then he got a little prideful. So he decided to go in the temple himself. And he was going to alter incense to the Lord on his own. Now, that's the job of the high priest. So as he got ready to go into the temple, the high priest and the priest came to him and said, Don't do this thing. He still went ahead and did it. And so as he walked into the temple to do it, immediately he was covered in leprosy. And the Bible says that he had to live his life as a leper until the day that he died. That's an example of judgment immediately. That's an example of, in the book of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira, of judgment immediately into death. But for most of us... Most of us, if you go home tonight, and on the way you're driving home, you don't like the way the person's driving in front of you, so you have some mean, nasty thought about them, God is not going to instantaneously kill you on the way home. But you will die. Sin kills. That's what happens. And this is what happens in our society is we become desensitized to it. So when you talk to somebody, and you talk about how sin, sin's awful, sin will destroy you, sin will kill you. But then you go out and you do those sinful things. And yeah, you feel bad about it, but you realize, I didn't die. I, I didn't die. I went and did that. 
and I actually lived. Oh, yeah, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, but I didn't die. But sin does eventually kill. For Adam, it was 930 years. You see the effects of this. And this is repeated for every single person. Every single person until we get to Noah, who takes us to the next scene in Genesis 6, is that they born, this is how long they lived, they had a child, this is their total amount of years, and then he died. Years ago, we had an individual that was coming out to church. They liked it. They loved us. But one little issue they had is that we talked about death way too often. That bothered them. Now, I have no problems talking about death. It's going to happen to every single one of us. I think it's a fact of life that we are going to die, and so therefore it's one of those ideas. I tell my boys, sometimes while we're doing devotions, guys, I don't know how long I'm going to be with you, so I'm going to ingrain these thoughts into your head right now. Love your wife as Christ, love the church, stay in the Word, all those type of things. I don't know. We're all going to die. The wages of sin is death. And I think this is something that sometimes we do as Christians is we don't understand and accept the fact that there's going to come a time when we will die and stand before the Lord. Genesis 5 rubs this point and hits it home that you are going to die. And I think that's one of the key components of Genesis 5 is that to remind us death will come. Yes, we live a life. Yes, we have sons and daughters, but we're also going to die. So that's an introduction that gets us to the rest of this. Any quick questions, comments about just that first point there? Death is coming because of sin. Okay. Now, a couple quick points. I love timelines. Love this. From verse 1 to verse 32, if you look at your sheets, this covers over 1,600 years. 1,600 years of people. The oldest person mentioned is Methuselah. lived 969 years. Adam saw his great, 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 great grandson. Just to put into perspective, I don't know about you growing up as a kid, the most I can remember is I remember my great-grandfather and I had a great-great-aunt and uncle that I could go that far back that I remember meeting. So to see Adam have a great-great-great-great-great-great, I think I got that right, grandson is pretty impressive. Now, I love this overlap type of stuff. Noah was born just a few years after Seth died. Now, the reason I bring this up is this. Noah was so close to being to Seth, which means that Noah was so close to being to Adam. That's how long these people lived. Abraham and Noah overlapped. Can you imagine that? Abraham would have had the opportunity to go to Noah and say, tell me about the flood. He overlapped with that. Going one step further, Shem and Jacob overlapped. So Shem, Noah's son, and Jacob of the 12 tribes of Israel, their ages actually overlap. So Jacob could have gone to Shem and say, tell me what it was like to be on the ark. That's how long these lived. Now, what happens here in chapter 5 is these, these ages are ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're biblical. That's the phrase there, these biblical ages. Most people believe, and as we get into the flood here... In the next couple of weeks, a lot of people believe that after the flood, the actual idea of the earth had changed a little bit, and that's why people didn't live as long as they lived then. Noah ended up living, if I remember off the top of my head, I believe 950 years. And what you see with Shem, who was born before the flood, he ended up living, I believe, 600 years. That's off the top of my head. But after this, you start seeing them kind of decrease. And I believe Abraham was, what, 175? Uh, I think Jacob was around 140 or something. So you start seeing them go down. But it's fascinating to see how they overlapped. 
I don't know. Maybe you don't find that interesting. I'm teaching tonight, so I get to keep bringing this up. I just think that's fascinating that Abraham could have went to Noah. Jacob could have went to Shem and had these connections. It's just kind of a fascinating thing. So you see this timeline here of everything that's going on. Now, a couple little details that we need to bring out. If you remember our study last week in Genesis 4, we talked about how these names meant things. Well, the same thing happens here. Methuselah's name, for example. His name means, when he dies, it comes, or dying, he shall send. This was a prophecy. Methuselah died the year of the flood. This idea that this was supposed to be coming here. And you can see this kind of happening. If you jump back to, or jump up, I should say, to verse, let's say, 28 of Genesis 5. It says, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah. Now, Noah's name means rest. Saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work, the toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. After he begotten Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There seems to be this understanding that they knew something big was coming. That's why Methuselah was named this. There obviously was some type of prophecy, because if you jump back to when Methuselah was born, you have Enoch there. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we're going to get to that here in a little bit. But you see this idea that there was something bigger coming up. Methuselah was prophesied that something would happen in the year that he died, and that's exactly what happened the flood. With Lamech, you see this prophesied about his son, his son meaning comfort or rest there, that he was going to bring some type of healing, which he did. And it's quite interesting how we can do this. Now, now we're introduced to Enoch, though. Look at verse 24 one more time. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Just took him. You know, there's, there's two people in the Bible that have not tasted death. Enoch walked with God and was not, as one translation says. And Elijah was taken up to heaven. Now, we don't need to get into a big debate about this. A lot of people believe that Enoch represents the rapture, this idea of being taken out before judgment comes. And that actually fits in very nicely. Enoch was taken out before Methuselah died. Methuselah died the year of the flood. And a lot of people believe that Enoch represents that idea of God taking us out before the tribulation time comes. Kind of an interesting idea there. But we need to talk about this idea of Enoch walking with God, and God took him. Now, I walk with God, and I don't think God's going to take me. You guys walk with God, and I don't think all of a sudden, one of these days, that God's going to take you. So, why did God take Enoch? Well, the answer is found in Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and it was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So since he pleased God, God took him. Now, I think I please God. I hope I do sometimes. Why is there a difference? I heard a pastor say this one time. He said, he kind of looks at it this way. That as Enoch and God were walking and talking, God almost said, you know, Enoch, you're closer to my house than your house. Why don't you just come stay with me? This idea of becoming so close to the Lord that you just go with him. I don't know if that's true or not. It's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe it's just a picture of the rapture. Maybe it's just something else. But obviously there's a reason why God did this. And it says that he pleased God. And that's what we need to talk about for a little bit here. Because what did Enoch do? 
What did Enoch do that pleased God? Now, before we get into this point, does anybody got any quick questions, comments, or anything we covered thus far? Yeah, Ryan. You can. You can you can go all the way up. I, I lost it right when Jacob... I, I tried to find out, and I ran out of time here, because as I was doing this, I kept saying, well, how far can I take this? And I wanted to see if we could find out how old Jacob was when he had Reuben. And I couldn't find that out exactly, and maybe somebody else out there could, because I wanted to see, could we form a connection between Shem, who was in the flood, to Reuben, who was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now... I just find that absolutely fascinating. I cannot stress this to you enough because I can remember growing up as a kid and hearing these names, and I guess I just lumped them all together. I just had these envisionment of Moses hung out with Abraham and that Abraham knew Isaac, obviously. And Well, Isaac obviously must have gone out and played with Seth. No, these guys lived thousands of years apart, but yet there's this amazing connection. And just like Ryan was saying there, you can take this, for a couple thousand years, because the Bible is that detailed on the genealogy and the years, and it gets right up to Jacob and the 12 tribes, and at that part, we start losing a little bit of the exact dates there a little bit. That's a fascinating study, to think that these guys overlap like that. Um, I know I've mentioned it at least once, and I mentioned it probably twice. I can't get past the fact, I can't imagine being Jacob and going looking up Shem and saying, tell me about the flood. What was it like? I just think that would be absolutely fascinating there. Yeah, Murph. Yeah. You know, that's a great way to put it. You know, Washington, if I remember correctly, he was you know about sixty some years old when he became president there. So he was born there in the early, you know, seventeen hundreds. So if you go from that perspective, Washington, you know, about three hundred some years old, Washington still be living for another six hundred thirty years. I mean, to, to put that in perspective, and I'm not, I, out the top of my head, I wish I could think of, of um, uh, somebody, something that happened 930 years ago to imagine going back. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, a major historical event like the Magna Carta or something like that. And when that was signed, is to be able to go up to somebody and say, you were there. That's fascinating. It's just absolutely, completely Fascinating, And I think sometimes what happens, and now that we're off on this tangent, we might as well go off on this tangent, I think sometimes people struggle with the Bible. And I think they struggle with this idea of, how can I trust it? Well, part of the reason why you can trust is Adam lived 930 years. There's a lot of information that can exchange hands that way. I mean, once again, you can be in the mind of Jacob, and if you want to know about the flood, go ask Shem who lived it. So then when Jacob has 12 boys... And they want to know about the flood. Jacob can say, well, you know, I was talking to Shem before you guys were born. And he told me. That's kind of the fascinating thing about this. One of the things I love to do is when I go get a chance to talk to somebody who, you know, who's older in years, like if be my grandpa or somebody else, I always like to say, who's the oldest relative you can remember meeting? And then see how far they can go back. And so basically, then I have this connection to them. They have this connection to somebody else. So then you can talk to somebody who talked to somebody 
You know, it was born in 1860 or something like that. It's just fascinating. So Genesis 5 may be the most boring chapter in the world to you. You only got 15 more minutes with me tonight. Hang in there. I love it. I love this information, the dates and all the connections and just the spiritual talk of it. I just absolutely love it. Shirley. Yeah. That's when it actually happened. And that's, and that's a very good point to mention that at that time they would have thought it was ridiculous to have a child um, where, you know, we're dealing with some people here that had children up in their hundreds. Everything completely changed. And like I said, it's pretty neat when you start studying out the dates, especially when you get to Noah, who was 950 years. Shem, like I said, off the top of my head, I believe he was 600. You start seeing this, the dates just decreasing dramatically. Anybody else? Rose. Where it says, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Well, I take verse 3 as saying that God is going to, in 120 years, judge the earth. That's the way I kind of take that. So we'll get to that next week, and you and I can argue about that this week. But I take it to mean that God is basically saying in 120 years that that is what's going to happen, that in about 120 years, that that is what's going to be, how long it's going to take Noah to build the ark. That's the way I kind of take that. I do know the psalmist wrote that man's year should be, what's the good old King James say, like three score and ten. Um, you know, the psalmist basically said, by that time we're going to have 70 years. And I, I think I've mentioned this before. I knew somebody who told me that life was pretty good up into 70. And after they hit 70, that's when they started falling apart. Um, but I take that verse three, and we can get to that next week, and we can talk about that a little more too. Anybody else got anything here before we move on? Yeah, Ryan. I also think it's odd the fact that the Bible basically skims over 1,656 years of history as if it were, you know, not a whole lot, whereas other parts of the Bible yeah. spend years and years and years discussing the life of David or Abraham yeah. and Jesus. Yeah, and, and that's a very valid point. Verses 1 through 32 is 1,600 years, just like that. But yet we'll have a um, old book of Nehemiah, which is a couple decades you know, you'll have uh, Jeremiah who ministered for decades that there's these huge books on. But you're absolutely right. 1,600 years versus 1 through 32. You know, basically what's happening in Genesis 5 is they're fulfilling God's command of be fruitful and multiply. Because it says, yes, they had Seth, but you also got to remember all these people, verse 4, he also had sons and daughters. This is what is recorded that we know. How many sons and daughters did Adam have? I have no idea. Obviously, we could speculate. And for some reason, this has always stuck with me. I don't know why. Jewish tradition is I believe Adam had 36 kids. And I have no idea where they got that from. And don't ever quote that. But that's just what comes out of this. We have no idea. But you're absolutely right. 1,600 years of history is summed up nicely in 32 verses. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Now, back to what we were talking about. Enoch walking with God, and then God took him. What happened to do this? I think there's a couple hints here. Jump back, if you will, please. Verse 19. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Now, we don't want to take verse 22 and look into it too much, but there's a very specific wording in there in verse 22. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. There seems to be something that happened when he had Methuselah. 
Now, I don't know what that was. Obviously, Methuselah's name is a prophecy. We've already covered that. When he dies, it comes. There was something that happened when he had Methuselah that seems to have triggered a deeper walk with the Lord. I don't know. I can just say this personally. I know for me, having children, I have five boys, they make me walk closer to God. Be it good, bad, or indifferent, they make me walk closer to God. I pray for more patience. I feel like I am more responsible to be in the Word. There's a deeper spiritual responsibility. You know, I was a pastor for, I'm trying to think, I was a pastor for a few years before we started having kids. And after kids, it's like, okay, there's this deeper responsibility. I'm doing this great study. And one of the questions in this study is that you're supposed to go up to your closest people you know. And they specifically said, go up to your children and ask them, what can I be doing better? as to be a a man of God. So I went up to all my kids that I could ask, and I went up to Elias, and I said, Elias, what do you think of me as a daddy? He goes, I think you're great. I said, okay. I said, is there anything I could do to be better? And this is what he said. He honestly stopped and thought about it, and he goes, no, I think you're perfect. Now, I know that's an all moment. I felt sick to my stomach. I'm I'm a loser, and I know that. I I completely know that. But to him... I don't do any wrong. Oh, my goodness. I know all the things I do wrong. And that is such a burden on me that right now, and you that have kids that are older, you know that. There's this age right now where my kids, don't. they asked me the other day, they said, Daddy, who's stronger, you or Hulk? Now, if you don't know, you don't know comic books, Incredible Hulk, I said, well, of course, Daddy. Because they still think I am. I went up to Kenan. I went through each of my boys. I said, Kenan, what do you think of me as a daddy? He says, I think you're good. He goes, what do you think... This is he was funny. I said, what do you think I could do better? He goes, I think you should go to church. I said, I go to church a lot. And I said, is there something other than go to church? He goes, I think you should be a pastor. That's what he said. I said, I'll try that. Point is, now I haven't asked Dawn yet. I'm supposed to ask Dawn what, what she thinks of me. And I'm going to get to her in a decade or two. But they right now, there's this burden. I mean, there is this burden. My kids come up to me on a daily basis, not, not questioning, hey, daddy, would you read the Bible today? Um, I'll get to that. Yeah. Or the other day they'll come up and they'll say, hey, can we pray about it? They spiritually keep me focused. So I see Enoch having Methuselah, and I think Enoch, maybe Methuselah was a horribly colicky kid. I don't know. Maybe Enoch said, I can't handle this. I have to have something. So I walk with God. This is just my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. When I see a nominal Christian have children, it either drives them closer to the Lord or seems to drive them farther away. I don't know if some of them just don't seem like they can handle the spiritual responsibility. Other ones seem to say, wow, I need to really be serious now about my faith. Enoch, something triggered with him. He started walking very, very close with the Lord. What's it mean to walk with God? Two quick verses on that. You can look at the bottom of your sheets. I love these verses. First one on Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. How simple is it? You want to know what God wants of you? Look at Deuteronomy 10. What does He require? Fear the Lord your God. The word fear does not mean tremble and fear. It means to have a healthy respect, okay? To walk in all His ways and love Him. Serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul. To obey His commands and statutes. If you go out and buy a brand new television or a computer, you're going to get a book about 150 pages thick to tell you how to take care of it. God sums up what he wants here in two verses. 
Just put him first. That's what it means to walk with God. If you are in your walk right now with the Lord and you're struggling and you think there's some deepness, Lord, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. How about you just start fearing him, loving him, serving him, and follow his word? Let's just keep it simple. What did Joshua say at the end in Joshua 22.5? Look at this one. But take careful heed to the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Uh, Sounds pretty simple. What's Joshua doing? He's just repeating what Moses taught him. Isn't that what we do? The only thing I'm going to do with my boys is to teach them what I've been taught and what I've learned in the Lord... And hopefully they teach it to their kids. Let's just keep passing it down. I think sometimes we complicate our walk with Christ. We mentioned Sunday, that little passage in Corinthians where it talks about the simplicity of Jesus. I've shared this story with you many times before. Forgive me for the repetition. There was a young man that we knew one time and had a deep heart for the Lord. A deep heart for the Lord. And he always was praying on what the Lord wanted him. Every single time you'd ask him, what's your prayer request? I want to know what the Lord wants me to do. And I remember I'd sit with him. We'd go out to eat. We'd have lunch. We'd have fellowship. And he would be this constant contemplating. He finally felt the Lord was leading him to start up a Bible study. So that's great. So then it was, what book? When should I do it? Constantly praying. I finally sat with him one time. I said, why don't you just pick a day, pick a time, and start it? Never did. Last I heard, he ended up moving away and doing some other stuff. The last time I checked in with him, or I should say someone filled me in, he's still seeking the Lord. Now, I've known this guy for about 10 years. And I'm not putting him down because he loves the Lord with all his heart. But for 10 years, he's still trying to figure out how to walk with the Lord. I think sometimes we complicate it. So, how what are we supposed to do? Look at Joshua 22 one more time. Obey the law. Obey God's word. Love the God, Lord. Walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, hold fast to him, and serve him. I I, I usually sum it up this way. If you're married, be the best husband you can be. Be the best wife you can be. If you have kids, raise your kids the best way. If you're not married, be the best friend you can be in the Lord. Find an area to serve. Impact your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your sphere of influence. What's not complicated, let's just walk with the Lord. Enoch walked with God. It pleased God, and God took him. What a great testimony. Last thing, go to Luke 24, please. Luke 24. Here's our last point about walking with God. We're talking about spiritually walking with the Lord. What you see here in Luke 24 is they were actually physically walking with the Lord. Luke 24. In Luke 24, Jesus has risen from the dead, and what happens is there's these two disciples that are walking to Emmaus. So you see this in verse 13. They're getting ready to travel to Emmaus. And as they're talking to each other, Jesus comes near them. But they don't know that it's Jesus. Verse 16, their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. So Jesus says to them, what kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? So they start talking about in verse 18, saying, don't you know what happened? Verse 19, Jesus, what happened? So they said the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet and mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. So they start telling Jesus about Jesus. I kind of find that a little fascinating, that you're telling Jesus about Jesus. So that's what they were doing. But what happens is they end their story kind of depressed, because they can't figure this out. 
So Jesus in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter in his glory? Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they're telling Jesus about Jesus, and now Jesus starts telling them about Jesus. I like that. What is Jesus doing in verse 27? Jesus is witnessing. That's what it is. You want to know how to witness? Take God's Word and explain it to people. God's Word does all the work. You want to know a little secret? And I wouldn't tell the Sunday crowd this. I only tell the Wednesday crowd. I don't do anything. I just tell you what the Bible says. That's all we're supposed to do. Just tell everybody what the Bible says. Verse 27. Start at the beginning and start telling them about Jesus. And that's what they did. Verse 28. Then they drew near to the village when they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. For it was toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. But I think the key is verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? That is the side effect of walking with Christ, as your heart burns within you. That's what happens. If you can think back to before you got saved to after you got saved, your heart now burns for the Lord. The closer you walk with the Lord, like Enoch, the stronger the fire burns. The farther you get away from Jesus, the more the fire starts to become dim. It's very, very simple. What made their heart burn within them in verse 32? The Scriptures. We as a church, and I mean collectively the church in the world, seem to get this wrong. People think it's the worship that makes your heart burn within. No, it's service. No, it's evangelism. No, it's fellowship. No, it's the scriptures. Now, to some people, that's the most boring thing of being a Christian. Well, that's what's going to make your heart burn within you for more of the Lord. Because it's through the scriptures that Jesus reveals himself to you. It's through the scriptures that Jesus says the whole book is written about me. Very simply put. Number one, are you like Enoch? Are you walking with the Lord? So let's get that point out of the way. That's two. Now, point number two, how close are you walking to the Lord? Is your heart burning within you for Him? Well, then amen. Get closer. Is your heart becoming dimmer? Then get closer. Well, how do you get closer? Verse 32, why don't you get into the Scriptures? And your heart will burn for more of the Lord. And you want more details of what to do? Go back to those passages in Joshua and Deuteronomy. Fear Him. Walk with Him. Obey His commandments. Serve Him. As you do those things, your heart burns for more of the Lord. It's a fascinating thing. The more I'm in the Word, and the more I serve the Lord, the more I want to be in the Word, and the more I want to serve the Lord. That's the way the system works. So, we want to be like Enoch. We want to walk with God. We want to be as close as we can. And we want our heart to burn within Him for that. So that's Genesis 5. We covered a whole lot of area. I encourage you next week. It's going to be a lot of fun as we get into Genesis 6. Noah and the flood. Great, great story there. Does anybody have any quick final questions, comments here? Ryan.
That, that is very true. I've heard that mentioned many times before. Um, when I teach through Revelation, I always teach. I'm a firm believer. I think it's Elijah and Moses. That's my personal opinion. Sometimes people come back to that and say, well, Moses died. I said, yes, he did. But there's a couple interesting passages about the death of Moses. You have to remember, at the end of Deuteronomy, it says that God picked the place to bury Moses, which is, I find fascinating. And in the book of Jude, you see Satan battling Michael for the body of Moses. So obviously Moses still has something that needs to happen. So that's why I believe Moses has a role, and I believe it's probably Moses and Elijah in Revelation. But I've heard people say it could be Enoch as well. Yeah. And I think that's an important part, too, as Moses was at the Transfiguration. Thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, I think Moses and Elijah represent the law and prophets. So usually when I teach through Revelation 11, I usually say, if you want to think it's Enoch, that's fine, but you're going to be wrong. But I, it's Moses and Elijah. That's my personal opinion, and I joke about that. But I think Scripture backs up. It looks like it could really be Moses and Elijah. But people have mentioned it could be Enoch, too. That's a good point. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here. Lord, help us to walk with you. We are going to taste death, and until that time that we taste death, help us just to walk in you as the people you've called us to and draw us close to you, that our heart may burn within us for more of you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.